KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Speaking out for disability rights on MLK Day. What place does ableism play in King's vision? Hint, absolutely none. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. Jade Heineman is off today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. <music> census ethnic categories don't include some thriving San Diego communities. The census numbers tell us that San Diego is getting increasingly diverse. Latinos and Asians in particular have been growing really fast in the county, and all of this is happening while the white population has been shrinking. The Legacy of War provides inspiration for dance photography in North Park, and civil rights films honor Dr. King tonight on Turner Classic Movies. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This morning's All People's Celebration in San Diego, honoring the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was once again a virtual event. The community organization Alliance San Diego hosted the 34th annual MLK Day celebration entirely online with a simple but strong theme this year, love and power. The slogan is taken from one of Dr. King's speeches, part of which declares power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Rebecca Coakley, U.S. Disability Rights Program Officer for the Ford Foundation, is this year's keynote speaker at the All People's Celebration, and she joins us now. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. What kinds of demands of justice are priorities for the large and diverse disabled community right now? All issues are disability rights and justice issues. Immigration reform, access to health care, the right to marry who you love. There is not a social justice issue being debated in this nation today that does not have a disproportionate impact on people with disabilities. Obviously, top of mind in this moment is the ongoing impact of the coronavirus. The virus we know results in roughly one-third of those individuals who have contracted it living with long-haul COVID, which in itself is a disability. We're talking about a minimum of 10 million newly disabled people in this country and a social service system that is not receiving nearly the kind of funding and resourcing it's going to need to meet the growing need of this growing community. So do you think the public health officials have done an adequate job of connecting with the disabled community during the pandemic? Absolutely not. As we saw this last week with the director of the Center for Disease Control implying that it was a good thing that people with disabilities and chronic illnesses where the largest proportion of people continuing to die of the virus, to seeing discussions about whether or not we return to work, placing greater value on its economic impact than on the impact of actual human beings' lives, shows us that we still have a long way to go for people with disabilities to be seen as equal voices at the table with public health officials. Now, it sounds from what you're saying that people with disabilities 
are not regularly considered when issues of equity are discussed, and they are still often forgotten. Is that get the case? It is very much the case. I mean, even the, the current voting rights legislation being discussed at this moment, the Freedom to Vote Act actually will make it harder for people with disabilities to access the vote than it is currently. And so I think that there continues to be this lack of recognition that people with disabilities exist disproportionately across all marginalized communities. We are disproportionately women. We are disproportionately people of color. We are disproportionately immigrants. And so any types of reforms or policies advancements that are intended to impact those communities must be examined to look at how they can either help or in this case, harm the rights of disabled people. I just want to play a little clip from President Biden earlier today about the effort to pass new federal voting rights legislation. In his time, through his courage, his conviction, and his commitment, Dr. King held a mirror up to America and forced us to answer the question, where do we stand? Whose side are we on? We're in another moment right now where the mirror is being held up to America. Okay, so there's the idea that voting rights legislation is trying to be passed through Congress. But you say there are things missing for the disabled in current discussions. Can you talk to us more about that? Definitely. It's not even so much that we're missing in the discussion. It's that the proposals being tossed around actually make it harder for people with disabilities to vote. A key part of the Freedom to Vote Act includes the the mandate of a paper ballot that can be verified. Not all people with disabilities can access a paper ballot. Some people with disabilities need to be able to access a touch screen or voice to text or other forms of technology to give them the same level of privacy to access their vote as non-disabled people. And yet that's not being part of the conversation. We continue to see the conversation around accessibility pitted against one of security. In the real world, do you see the struggle for disabled rights actually meshing with the ongoing fight for racial equality, or are there some areas where they are fighting one another? I think we've seen a generational advancement in a really pivotal way. I think we talk about this in the disability community in the context of what we call the ADA generation, or the first generation of people in this country that have grown up with the rights of the ADA interlocking with their education rights. We see this when it comes to allies too. And frankly, from activists in Ferguson to the Women's March, to my colleagues at organizations like the National Action Network and the National Black Justice Coalition, they see us as partners at the table. We collaborate, we work to come to consensus on key issues that impact all of our communities. And we stand by each other in times like this. And so I am seeing a shifting and a greater inclusion of disability issues into the mainstream, but that also just has to be the reality. You can't be doing social justice work if you're not being inclusive of people with disabilities. You can't get policing reform or ameliorate poverty in this country unless disabled people are part of the conversation and at the table while decisions are being made. Rebecca, in your keynote today, you talked about your own family's role in the history of racism in this country, specifically your grandfather. Why was it important for you to address that today? Because as white people in this country, for too long, we have expected black and brown people to fix racism. And it will not be fixed in this country until white people start standing up 
examining how we benefit from the institution of racism and actually put our butts on the line to make this country a better place for everyone. Did Dr. King himself ever address the need for equality for people with disabilities? No, we actually, in in all of the readings that I've done, I've seen conversations around economic insecurity. I've seen issues around conversations around gender, but in none of the readings that I have done, have I ever seen Dr. King directly address issues of people with disabilities. But that is not to say disabled people were not at the table. For if you actually look at video from the I Have a Dream speech, standing to the right of Dr. King during the speech is an African-American little person activist named Kenny Brown, who was very active in SCLC and and SNCC during the heyday of the civil rights movement. So our community has always been at the table, though for a long time, talking about disability, just like talking about LGBT issues, was seen as a distraction from the greater issues of the time. What is most misunderstood about the disabled community in your view? That disability rights are something extra, that the right to have closer parking is a privilege and not something that we have a a fundamental civil right to because of the discrimination we face as people with disabilities. I think so often we see stories of disability rights framed in, oh, well, that's a special privilege that those people have because they're disabled not that is something that people with disabilities need so they can get to the same table as people without disabilities. And until we're actually able to have that conversation and examine our own prejudices as it relates to sanism and ableism that are faced by people with disabilities in this country, we will never achieve Dr. King's dream. I've been speaking with Rebecca Coakley, U.S. Disability Rights Program Officer for the Ford Foundation. She was also keynote speaker at the All People's Celebration today in San Diego. Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Martin Luther King Jr. Day has become a celebration of all of America's diversity. But we may be missing out on the entire scope of our different heritages and experiences because we're just not documenting them. A review of the 2020 census finds that San Diego is more diverse than ever before, but some San Diegans wonder where they belong when faced with the standard census categories. Several vibrant communities say their identities are hidden behind generic ethnic labels. Joining me is Voice of San Diego reporter Maya Shri Krishnan. And Maya, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, on your podcast, San Diego 101, you start off by talking about the overall problems with the 2020 census that may have tainted results. Can you remind us about that? Yeah, so there were a few things that happened. Um, One was that the Trump administration tried to add the citizenship question, which didn't end up actually happening, but it still potentially spooked a lot of people who were already in hard to count communities because um, they were in immigrant communities and were concerned that filling out the census may have an impact on their ability to stay in the country. Then there was also the COVID-19 pandemic, which made gathering information in person really difficult. In past 
census counts. Uh, there have been people who go door to door, particularly in hard to count communities. And that was sort of impossible at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then finally, in fall 2020, the Trump administration actually cut the census gathering short a little bit. And again, many of these hard to count communities are some of the communities who end up filling out their census data last. And there's potential that some of them were also left out in that process. Even so, the census is telling us that San Diego's diversity is increasing. What do the numbers say? Yeah, so the census numbers tell us that San Diego is getting increasingly diverse. Latinos and Asians in particular have been growing really fast in the county. Um, Since 2010, the Latino population has grown by almost 13%, and the Asian population has grown by more than 22%. And all of this is happening while the white population has been shrinking. Now, you mentioned that an increase in people identifying as other on the census is a key indicator. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, we don't know the full extent of who's filling out other, but it is likely people who don't feel like they fit into one of the other racial or ethnic categories on the census. And compared to the last census, there were about three times as many people in San Diego County who chose other. So that definitely raises questions of, you know, who are those people? How do they identify and what their experiences are? Yeah, how do the standard categories that we find on the census form, like white, black, or Asian, how do they pose problems for people of different ethnic backgrounds? So there are a lot of issues that several communities have raised about the census categories. For example, people who identify as Latino, there's the Hispanic, non-Hispanic category. But when you get down to the racial groups, there's no Latino or Hispanic category there. And so, you know, some of them end up selecting white or they may identify as indigenous, or they may end up selecting other. In addition, many people who are, you know, Arab Americans or um, Middle Eastern or North African descent tend to be identified as white on the census, and there is no separate category for them. And I think that's been something that they have been trying to change and advocate for um, to have a separate census category for many, many years now. Okay, so if someone of Arab American or North African descent identified as white on a census form, how does that obscure the growth of these communities in San Diego? Well, I mean, first, we can't really separate it from the growth of the white community or any changes in the population of the white community. And I think that in addition to just being able to see numbers, it also makes many people in those communities not feel seen or acknowledged because They feel their experiences are very different than white people. But, you know, when it comes to the way data is collected, it's really hard for those experiences to come out in reports or be acknowledged by governments. You know, the census shapes how so many other institutions collect data. So we also don't really have great public health data or educational outcome data specific to those communities. And we can't see what their experiences are, whether they're struggling in certain regards and whether they need more resources and support. Tell us about a little bit more about the practical consequences for communities that feel their identities are hidden in these generic labels, like funding, for instance, from state government and from the federal government. One example that I reported on recently uh, has to do with the way Asians and Asian Americans are classified on census and in many other um, ways data is collected around the country. So Asians are all grouped together, regardless of whether they're from India, the Philippines, China, or whether they were born here. And that can kind of hide, again, some of the experiences of some groups. So, for example, 
COVID data in San Diego County hasn't been broken down in a way that would show you how the Filipino community is experiencing it versus how like the Indian community is experiencing it. And uh, we recently did an investigation where we went through all of the death certificates in the county from the first year of COVID. And we actually found that Filipinos were the second highest impacted group of all groups in the county. And they had really high death rates. And this is likely in part due to their prevalence in healthcare fields and caregiving fields. But what advocates in the community told us was that, you know, they saw people in their communities getting sick and dying, and they knew it was happening more than in some other communities. But organizations that specifically serve the Filipino community that could give them information in a way that's culturally nuanced and relevant to the specific experiences they're having that make them more at risk for COVID. Um, Those organizations weren't able to get as much funding to do outreach for vaccine knowledge or even, you know, awareness of how to isolate and keep yourself safe in the same way that some organizations that serve other groups were able to because the Filipino impact of COVID-19 wasn't out there, you know, it wasn't being tracked by the government agencies that were providing this funding. You know, Maya, it seems that with the technology and software that's available, the census could have, I mean, a couple of hundred ethnic categories to choose from. Do we know why that hasn't happened? I mean, I don't think we know why for sure. Um, I'm sure lots of people have different theories or different reasons as to why that might happen. I know I've certainly talked to some advocates who believe that it is, you know, an intentional effort to kind of bury some of the experiences of certain communities. It might just also be an aversion to change that comes with big bureaucratic federal governments. But there's probably lots of different things that are playing into why there hasn't been more shifts in how the census tracks racial and ethnic categories. But there is an effort to make changes in the next census. Tell us about that. There were campaigns in 2010 and 2020, in particular for people who identified as MENA, which means Middle Eastern and North African, so that they could have their own category. And um, there were discussions about that actually um, at the U.S. Census Bureau. It didn't end up happening. And then there was also a grassroots campaign to kind of write in um, after they selected other, write in that they are in the MENA category. Those efforts didn't really end up working when it came, when the data came out, but I'm sure that there are going to be similar efforts underway before 2030. Okay, then I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego reporter Maya Sri Krishnan. Maya, thank you very much. Thanks. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. Jade Heineman has the day off. Some immunocompromised people will be eligible for additional COVID shots, but is that enough protection? The California Report's Saul Gonzalez talked to UCSF physician Dr. Lindsay Ryan about the issue and her support for more assistance for those with damaged immune systems. I've heard from a lot of immunocompromised people around the country over recent months plus, and there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of a sense of abandonment and being forgotten. There's a lot of sense that they haven't been given the information they need to take proper care of their health or the tools to do that, and that they don't really know where to look. 
So what specifically are the shortcomings that you see when it comes to the information that the immunocompromised are or are not receiving? I think individually, people need to know what their risk is in terms of how sick they might get from COVID. You know, and obviously you can't predict that exactly. But as I said, the risk of someone who, for instance, just got a kidney transplant two months ago is different from someone who's on a very low dose of an immunosuppressant that's not particularly high risk. They need to know that. They need to have good information about vaccination and, and boosters, when they should get those, why they should get those. And for people who might have a very poor response to vaccination, they need to have information about other options, which right now include potential monoclonal antibody therapy. And just to be clear, we're talking about laboratory-produced molecules that could substitute or mimic antibodies that are found in the body. Exactly. So monoclonal antibodies, they're artificially produced in a lab, and they basically bind to the spike protein on the coronavirus to inactivate the virus. And they do you know, what the antibodies produced by one's own immune system would do, except some people can't produce adequate antibodies. Right now, there's a preventative monoclonal antibody combination called Evasheld that's available for people who did not respond adequately to the coronavirus vaccination series because of immunocompromise. As I said before, there's around an estimated 7 million immunocompromised people in the country, of whom many would benefit from Evasheld. The government initially purchased around 700,000 doses, actually just committed to another 500,000 doses, which, you know, still is likely to be far from enough. And the emails that I get in my inbox now are from people who are distraught that they're literally being put into lotteries with other patients at their cancer centers, pitting them against each other um, in hopes that they'll be the lucky one who gets the next dose of the monoclonal antibody. And I think this is an example of the fact that the lives of immunocompromised people during the pandemic have not been put on equal footing with the lives of non-immunocompromised individuals. And there needs to be a serious look at the equity issues surrounding this. What more should be done to address the particular concerns of the immunocompromised population? So I think right now we're at a point where it's becoming clear that coronavirus will become an endemic virus and that we're all going to have to adjust as individuals and a nation as to what this is going to mean for our lives, our work. And in thinking about what that involves on a policy level nationally and locally, it needs to involve considering what the lives of immunocompromised people are going to look like and also including their voices in that conversation. And for the people for whom the vaccines are not enough, they should be given the full tools to protect themselves too equitably with other Americans, and that means good access to preventive monoclonal antibodies. And those have been in extraordinarily short supply. That was UCSF Dr. Lindsay Ryan talking with the California Report's Saul Gonzalez. (music) 
High above the humdrum hustle and bustle of urban Los Angeles lies the Mount Wilson Observatory. Inside two giant white domes, visitors will find two aging yet massive telescopes that are deeply important to the history of astronomy. Some of the biggest names in the field of astroscience have looked through these, including Edwin Hubble, George Ellery Hale, and even Albert Einstein. And now visitors can look through these famous telescopes too for a price. It's not cheap, but it does come with free snacks and an astronomer to guide your trip to the outer reaches of the sky. The California Report magazine's Peter Gilstrap made the trip up to Mount Wilson to see what happens when the stars come out. That's the 100-ton dome turning to accommodate the view of the 60-inch telescope a move it's been making since things began here so long ago. In 1908, it was the largest telescope in the world. That's telescope operator Tom Mason. He's one of a devoted cadre of amateur astronomers and retired engineers who keep things going atop Mount Wilson. He's been volunteering at the observatory for 17 years. It was the first telescope placed on a mountain this size. It was the first real enactment of the mirror-reflecting type telescope. So you have a lot of history here. The telescope itself is an industrial latticework of tubular steel angled toward a crack in the dome like a cannon. It's about the size of a crouching Tyrannosaurus Rex, and it's painted baby blue. The tube got here 113 years ago on the back of a truck that barely made it up the winding dirt road from Pasadena. The unbelievably delicate 60-inch mirror that's the reflecting heart of the telescope arrived by a team of pack mules. Since the machine opened its enormous eye on the skies, it's lived to become the granddaddy of virtually every modern scope in existence. And while down below, Los Angeles constantly grows and mutates upon itself, demolishing and building again and again, year after year, up on Mount Wilson, things barely change. Now, do we have the technology to hook this up to a computer and guide it? Yes. Mount Wilson is not willing to trust this to a computer, and that's why we still operate it by hand. They don't trust it to a computer. It's a notion that's absolutely breathtaking. And don't even think about cell reception up here. You can look down the eyepiece at an ancient long-dead star still beaming its ghost light toward Earth, but you can't text anyone about it. The telescope and the whole tower itself obey the slightest touch of the control buttons. At the top, another astronomer gets ready to photograph the heavens. To the scientist, the quarrels and warrels of this small Earth must seem mighty petty as he penetrates celestial mysteries such as these. Many of those celestial mysteries were solved at the observatory. Scientist Harlow Shapley worked at Mount Wilson from 1914 to 1921. He used the telescopes to determine the size of the Milky Way galaxy. Yes, the size of the galaxy. This guy you've never heard of did that. He also found that Earth was not the center of that galaxy. So what did that do? That moved us off out here off one of the arms of the galaxy. Great discovery right here with the 60-inch uh, telescope. Yeah, And a blow to the ego of uh, those who thought we were you know, <laughs> yeah. running the yeah. show. Yes, well, I, uh, our ego has been blown a couple times up here because we thought we were the only galaxy there. And then the Hubble came along and discovered that, yes, there is another galaxy out there. And now we're in the billions of galaxies type thing. Does it make you feel very, very tiny when you think about that? Uh, yes, it does. 
because of how big this is. But also, uh, as a Christian, it also brings my attention to something. The scripture says, O Lord, O Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him compared to this great universe you made? And this little dust spot, the earth, and then I'm a dust spot on that earth. Astronomy loves darkness. And by the late 1990s, Los Angeles had become ground zero for light pollution. As scientific research was moving from Mount Wilson to low-wattage places like Chile, the decision was made to open the facility to the public. This rare opportunity has drawn all kinds of people up the mountain. Sunshine Day came from Long Beach with an open mind and no real idea of what she would experience. A friend gave her a ticket. Now, as she steps away from gazing through the telescope, she looks stunned, even above her mask. This is my very first time here. So tell me what just happened. Wow, um, I'm looking at these what appears to be like dots, but they're actually the planets. And as I fine tune the, the eyepiece, I can actually see how different the, the two planets are. It, it's amazing to be able to see that far. It's got to be hundreds of miles. It's, oh, yeah, at least. <laughs> so looking through this mountaintop window into the distant reaches of space, what does she think about? I think about what's happening out there in the sky is actually also happening inside of me, like all my cells and capillaries, my organs, how things are just kind of orbiting and rotating, how my lungs fill with air and, you know, that... that there's just like this divine order to things. And um, I don't know much about the stars and those planets and what's out there, but I imagine that that macrocosm is sort of like the microcosm within my body, you know? I don't know. I just, <laughs> those are the things that I get to think about when I come to places like this. Like having it to, to rent out and just to be able to come and see this is absolutely awesome. And so the night goes on. And once again, the howling aria from the aging gears begins as the dome and the telescope slowly turn to chase the shifting stars and galaxies across the sky. And once again, these humble people of Earth, with their coffee and their fascination, wait to approach the telescope, look in, and see the next strange and beautiful wonder. That was the California Report Magazine's Peter Gilstrap. The aftermath of decades of war provides stark inspiration for a new exhibition at Art Produce in North Park. The work, viewable from the sidewalk, features Doug McMinimi's photography of a dance piece by choreographer Kamla Sompet. KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans explains the story behind the images. It's dusk outside Art Produce Gallery on University Avenue in North Park. From the sidewalk, against the rapidly dimming light of the sky, the gallery's floor-to-ceiling windows practically glow. Inside, larger-than-life photographs adorn all the walls, even the floor. In them, a single dancer twists, reaches, and crouches in movement. The photographer is Doug McMinimi. The dancer is Lauren Christie. 
At the heart of it is San Diego choreographer Kamla Sompan and her recent work, Purposely Accidental. Sompan was born in Laos, a country that holds the chilling statistic of being the most bombed nation per capita in the world. During the pandemic, she wanted to make a work to tell that story. Former President Trump was our president at the time, and one of the first things that he did when he came into term was to remove the initiatives that President Obama had instilled with the country of Laos. And one of them, they he gave them, I think it was like $90 million to help remove the bombs and beautiful initiative to bring more education into the country and especially for women. And former President Trump took that away. So that was heavy on me. And it had also been heavy because I wasn't able to see my parents. I was worried about them. In the 1960s and 1970s, during a CIA mission in Laos amidst the Vietnam War, some 2 million tons of explosives were dropped on the small nation. Just 1% of these bombs were detonated, and 80 million bombs remain undetonated, effectively landmines scattered across the land. Sompan said that the bombs are undeniable and a part of everyday life in Laos, both in their omnipresence in the landscape, but also in their continuing tragedies. In the gallery, in addition to the oversized pictures on the walls, eight of the images are printed on durable adhesive-backed vinyl and installed on the floor. Photographer Doug McMinnamy said their positioning in a grid is important. That grid on the floor is a you know distant allusion to a grid you would make in a field when you're trying to clear it from from mines. The images also afford a perspective that audiences may otherwise never get during a performance, both profoundly up close and from above. And so by placing the photos on the floor, I wanted to give us just the faintest of faintest echoes of that anxiety as well and uh, that you're suddenly very aware of where you're stepping. When McMinnamy first saw this performance, he found Sampan's choreography incredibly meaningful, but also more than any other dance he'd photographed as a professional photographer. This piece lent itself particularly well to this medium. There was something about the very strong gestural material in the dance that that translates so well into a still image. And that's really critical because uh, some dance, like for example, pirouettes, I've photographed a lot of pirouettes. I rarely find them very compelling as a still image. They're very compelling as movement. So you have to find those things that translate into a still photograph. McMinnamy first shot the performance last spring, then collaborated with dancer Lauren Christie and Sampan on a separate shoot specifically for this project with the gallery walls and floor in mind. A choreographer is no stranger to handing off a personal creative product to another artist. In fact, the relationship between choreographer and dancer is essentially transactional already. Audiences add additional possibilities of interpretation. In this case, the photographer adds one more. Each image the photographer chose to shoot, each decision about which ones to print, even the order by which the pictures are arranged in the gallery. These are new layers of meaning added to the work. And Sampan said, these exchanges are essential in art. In the creative process, we have to trust what and how things come out. And we can have an approach, but 
that's part of what we do. And because art is alive. While the photography is all viewable from the sidewalk, especially at night, you can also make an appointment to see the work indoors. Inside, visitors can hear the dance's soundtrack and audio of a speech to the people of Laos by President Obama in 2016. Six decades ago, this country fell into civil war. And as the fighting raged next door in Vietnam, your neighbors and foreign powers, including the United States, intervened here. As a result of that conflict and its aftermath, many people fled or were driven from their homes. At the time, the U.S. government did not acknowledge America's role. It was a secret war. Indoors, you can step amidst the floor photography and get up close in a way not otherwise possible with dance, either from the layout of a performance hall or the current COVID surge and the resultant event cancellations. This choreography debuted with San Diego Dance Theater in a virtual production in November 2020, and it was also performed in person in an outdoor Liberty Station showcase last spring. The virtual performance is no longer viewable online. So for now, until future performances are scheduled, a collection of photographs in a small art gallery is the only way to experience the work. The exhibition, Dis Remember, will be on view at Art Produce through January 29th. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. In honor of Martin Luther King Jr., Turner Classic Movies has created a program of documentary shorts and features looking at the civil rights movement of the 1960s. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando has this preview of tonight's lineup that begins at 5 p.m. To celebrate the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., Turner Classic Movies has partnered with the Chicago Film Archives to broadcast eight films from the Film Group collection. The program was curated by TCM host and film scholar Jacqueline Stewart. The rarely screened documentaries offer a window onto the civil rights movement of the 1960s, with a specific focus on the unrest that took place in Chicago during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Most delegates to this convention do not know that thousands of young people are being beaten in the streets of Chicago. The film group was initially formed to make commercials and industrial films, but turned its attention to social documentaries after its commercial film crew witnessed police violence during the 1968 protests. The crew then started filming the events unfolding before them, and that eventually led to an educational series called The Urban Crisis and the New Militants. The ideology of the Black Panther Party, you know, is uh, pretty much the ideology of, of the masses of black people. You know, we only offer forth what black people want, you know, and what they've been crying for for a long time. And uh, that is to have complete freedom, you know. And that means in every facet of life we want freedom. And we all realize that right now we're living in a pseudo type of freedom. We haven't got the old slave shackles on us anymore, but we live in a society where our minds are shackled. 
The film group's founder, Bill Cottle, has described the films as designed to teach by raising questions rather than by attempting to answer them, and by showing real events with real people acting spontaneously. In this film, called Black Moderates and Black Militants, members of the Black Panther Party sit down with a black principal to better understand each other. I have my doubts. I understand you what you mean, but as long as you work within a framework of what is existing now, I think you'll always run into a hang-up because, you see, the thing is we're about changing what exists now, you know, by whatever means necessary, including revolution, you know. In addition to these shorter works are two outstanding feature-length documentaries, American Revolution II and The Murder of Fred Hampton. Chairman Fred is gone, gone from the streets where his heart and his people are, but not for long. For the people's love for Fred Hampton is lovelier than lovely. Just recently, the National Film Preservation Board selected The Murder of Fred Hampton for the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress. Films are selected for their cultural, historical, and aesthetic significance. The Murder of Fred Hampton looks to the charismatic 21-year-old leader of the Illinois Black Panther Party. So we say, we always say the Black Panther Party that they can do anything they want to to us. We might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that. David F. Walker has written a graphic novel about the Black Panther Party. I've known about the Panthers since I was a you know, teenager. You know, that's when I first read Bobby Seale's book. I first became familiar with who Fred Hampton was in my early 20s and, and really became obsessed with him and his life and his murder. I, I have this firm belief that the day that the civil rights movement officially ended was the day that he was murdered. I, and I still hold to that belief in a lot of ways. And so this is a story I always wanted to put out because I felt like everybody needs to know the story of Fred Hampton. Everybody needs to know. And, and I remember a time when there was no books about him. And, and the only people that seemed to know who he was was either people in sort of the radical political movement or, or people from Chicago. Hampton was killed in his sleep in 1969 during a police raid, but his murder garnered little mainstream attention. The film group's 1971 documentary looked to Hampton and his tragic death. Walker explains the details. The FBI worked in conjunction with the Chicago Police Department to to murder Fred Hampton in 1969. And, and that's not an exaggeration. That's That's documented proof. And I think that what the most valuable lesson we have to learn is that we can't underestimate the forces that we're up against and their desire to stop the, the people from, from getting out from under their oppressive stance. Uh, and I think that the other thing that, that we need to learn from the Panthers, and, and this is something that, that really was not, is not talked about, is the idea of solidarity. They became their most dangerous in the eyes of the government when they started reaching out to other organizations. And Fred Hampton specifically, and the, the, uh, the Chicago branch of the Illinois chapter of the party, was, was more successful at that than anybody else. And he had built this coalition of youth street gangs in Chicago and white radicals and, and Hispanic radicals. And, and he was talking about building almost like a people's army of the poor and disenfranchised. But if you study Fred, Hampton and you study what was going on in Illinois, you see this this blueprint for a, a grassroots movement of solidarity. The documentaries highlighted on TCM tonight allow us to see and hear members of the Black Panther Party in an unfiltered way.
But Walker says you won't find many films, fiction or nonfiction, that focus on the Black Panther Party. I think the reason there hasn't been that many films dealing with the Black Panthers, it's, it's pretty complex. I think part of it is that a lot of people still see them as being very controversial. And, and I think that, that it's more that they're misunderstood than controversial. And I think that it, it comes down to the fact that if you were to write a story, if you're writing, a, a, I guess, you, for lack of a better term, a traditional narrative of the, uh, the Black Panther Party that casts them in the role of the good guys, well, then the bad guys are the United States government. The bad guys are definitely J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, but it's the Chicago Police Department. And so I think that when we're, and, and, it's, and we're talking about a level of corruption on a governmental level, both federal, state, municipal, that is kind of mind-boggling when you really think about it. And now it's not as mind-boggling now because we're seeing some of these things play out on the, on the news on a daily basis, the, the acts of police brutality, the cover-ups that are going on, the, the lack of transparency. All of this was going on in, you know, in the 60s and, and before that and since then. But I think that in terms of popular entertainment, it's difficult for a lot of people to get down with how do we show that. I think that part of the the problem dealing with things like systemic racism is that it, it forces people to take a look at their own culpability. It's not just systemic racism, it's also uh, sexism and homophobia and all the other forms of oppression. Once you acknowledge it, you have to look at your own culpability. And, and sometimes that culpability is is merely inaction or apathy. And, and nobody wants to nobody wants to face that. Tonight, TCM serves up a collection of documentaries that provide a vital and fascinating historical context to more recent social and political unrest. It's a history lesson that resonates loudly today and provides a great way to remember Martin Luther King Jr. That was Beth Accomando with excerpts from her 2020 and 2021 interviews with author David F. Walker. Walker's graphic novel is called The Black Panther Party. The film group documentaries screen tonight on Turner Classic Movies starting at 5. in jail had no money for to go their bail keep your eyes on the prize hold on hold on hold on hold on keep your eyes on the prize hold on KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu.